Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. So in this episode, we are finally getting back to the Eastern Front. I know we've been away for a long time. Last we discussed the Ostfront was in episode 23, nine episodes ago. And the last episode before that one to feature the Eastern Front was episode 14. Of course, that was at the end of a four-episode streak solely about the East. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, we haven't spent much time in the East, but we're finally back. Last time, I very much glossed over the Soviet winter counteroffensive of 1941 to 1942, when the green and under-equipped Red Army troops gave a determined shove, as I called it, against the experienced but exhausted and undersupplied Soldaten of the Wehrmacht, which, in the end, accomplished very little except to regain a modicum of lost ground. Then, we recounted the summer months of 1942, as Army Group South was divided into Army Group A and Army Group B, which pushed east to the Volga and southeast to the Caucasus. During mid-1942, Hitler had given up on taking Moscow itself, and now his gaze was set on the oil fields of the southern Caucasus and the militarily arbitrary but politically valuable town of Stalingrad on the western banks of the Volga. So now we finally catch up to the other two major theaters, North Africa and the Pacific. As the Battle of Stalingrad was beginning in September of 1942, the Marines were in their second month on Guadalcanal, and Montgomery was preparing his men for the Battle of El Alamein. By February to March of 1943, Guadalcanal would be won, the Axis would be kicked out of North Africa, and the Battle of Stalingrad would be concluded. By the end of this episode, we'll have finally finished 1942 and gotten to early 1943, the crucial change of momentum in the war. Before beginning the episode, there is one last thing I want to mention. I'd like to recommend a podcast to all of you, The Plane Crash Podcast. It's essentially a podcast devoted to researching historical plane crashes, what caused them, how they happened, and what safety measures were implemented to prevent them from happening again. If you're interested, please keep listening after the episode for their promo. Anyway, that's enough front matter. Let's begin episode 33, The Last Field Marshal. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? In late 1942, Hitler's empire was at its greatest extent. The swastika flag flew on mountain peaks from the Pyrenees to the Caucasus, and German soldiers stood sentinel from the sands of North Africa to the fjords of northern Norway. Hitler now led the greatest empire Europe had seen since the Caesars. For me, it's hard to fathom just how dominant the German position was. All of Europe was under the thumb of Berlin. It must have seemed like the end of history, to steal and mangle a phrase. All of European history had culminated with the Germans controlling everything. 
Sure, on paper the Italians, Romanians, and Hungarians were equal partners in the Axis, but that was a poorly maintained fiction. Nor did the tide seem to be turning in the summer of 1942. The Ostier was steamrolling over the Red Army in the east. The exhaustion and cold of the previous winter had been shaken off, and the strength of the Panzer armies was once again on display. The vast expanse of steppe in southern Russia and eastern Ukraine lent itself well to the vast armored maneuvers that the Wehrmacht excelled at. In North Africa, Rommel was keeping the British engaged. Not that it mattered much from the German perspective. North Africa was a secondary front, kept going more to save face than for any pressing military purpose. It was something of a low-risk, high-reward theater. Relatively few troops were committed, and even if they were lost, it was only a local problem, rather than a grand strategic failure. If Rommel were to somehow achieve victory, though, he could seize the Suez Canal, and possibly even Iraqi oil fields, greatly compounding the Allies' strategic dilemmas. In addition, this would help alleviate Hitler's petroleum shortage and help shut down the RAF in the Mediterranean. So when the opportunity came to take Stalingrad, Hitler demanded it. The German army assumed the city would fall like so many before it, and if they could cut off the lower Volga from central Russia, they could deny Stalin his oil without actually capturing it. Sure, it would have been easier to cut the Volga further south, where it was not straddled by a small industrial city, but no one expected the battle to turn into a six-month-long struggle. So the German 6th Army, under General Paulus, began their preparatory bombardment of Stalingrad on September 14th, which lasted several days. The combined air and artillery bombardment was so heavy that hardly an individual blast could be discerned, and it all melted into one giant roar during its peak. Unlike an open terrain, however, a massive bombardment of an urban area does not necessarily reduce it as much as it turns it into a labyrinth of collapsed buildings, tunnels, and hideouts. The 62nd Army under General Vasily Chukov suffered casualties, surely, but not enough to severely impede their defense. So once the bombardment stopped, the Russians occupied the rubble and dug in like ticks. When the German attack finally began in earnest, they were entering into the sniper's wonderland that was the collapsed city. Sure, the German soldiers excelled at maneuver in open country, but none of them really had any experience in urban combat. An urban environment soak up troops faster than any other kind of terrain. Over the steppe, a German army group could cover hundreds of miles of terrain, but could hardly fill even a modest-sized city like Stalingrad, which occupied about 20 miles of the western bank of the Volga. Over the course of the second half of September, the 6th Army pushed into Stalingrad with vicious frontal assault after vicious frontal assault. These often came at huge expense and life lost, and were nearly always followed by a Soviet counterattack. Typically, the Germans would advance during the day, take a position, then settle in to defend it overnight. But when they awoke, they found that their lines had been infiltrated, and they had to dig out the Russian troops who had got between their positions. The Red Army troops used the chaotic terrain to their advantage, crawling through rubble, past German positions, undetected. As a result, the front was very porous, and the exact location of friendly and enemy was always a little murky. Further confusing matters, the battle for Stalingrad had spread into three dimensions, rather than just two, by going underground. With surface structures constantly being rolled and shuffled by artillery, anything that could be moved underground was. Now clearing an area meant not just taking a building, but clearing its basement and the surrounding subterranean cavities. Just taking one block from the enemy could take days and hundreds of men. A German company would occupy a warehouse on one side of the street, and a Russian platoon a house on the other. From dawn to dusk they would shoot at one another, 
throw grenades into each other's buildings, lob mortars into their rear, and just try to kill each other in every imaginable way. All the while, this kicked up dust and filled the air with smoke, creating a hellscape few ever have had the misfortune of enduring. When they would probe each other's defenses, or when the assaults would come, they would often devolve into melees in the confined quarters of basements, cellars, and collapsed rooms they inhabited. This went on for months. Despite local setbacks and infiltrations, the Germans had occupied the lower half of the city by the end of September, and Paulus was bringing more troops in to take the rest of it. Meanwhile, Georgi Zhukov was only feeding in enough men and just enough supplies to make taking the city costly. He was planning something else entirely, and by committing all of their best troops to taking the city, the Germans were playing right into Zhukov's hand. In order to get the men he needed for the attack on the city proper, Hitler had left the defense of his flanks to the Italians, Hungarians, and Romanians, hardly equals of the German legions. It did not take the Stavka long to figure this out, and as Napoleon was fond of saying, never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. On October 14th, Paulus launched a renewed offensive to take the rest of the city. It was heralded by a combined air and artillery bombardment even larger than the initial barrage that had precipitated the entire battle. The bombardment was so heavy that the entire city was engulfed in dust and smoke, and it even managed to strike the Soviet 62nd Army's headquarters, killing three members of its staff and wounding most of the rest. Despite the massive artillery and airstrike, the Germans were only able to advance about a mile before the offensive fizzled out. From here on, there would be no big gains. Everything would be a fight for inches and a battle of attrition. By the end of October, through numerous smaller actions, Polish would control roughly 90% of the city. Unfortunately for the Germans, the Red Army had begun a counteroffensive on October 19th. Both the Don Front and the Soviet 64th Army began local counteroffensives that would force the Germans to reroute some troops and supplies to shore up those areas. These were only the preamble to Zhukov's major theater counteroffensive scheduled for November. Zhukov would utilize three fronts, Army Group equivalents, to carry out the encirclement of the 6th Army. The Southwest, Don, and Stalingrad fronts consisted of a total of eight infantry armies and five tank armies. This massive effort, aimed at isolating the 6th Army in Stalingrad, began on November 19th, and by November 23rd, the pinchers from the three fronts met at Kalik, west of Stalingrad. Paulus and his men were now trapped. The sensible thing to do here would have been for Paulus to attempt a breakout. Though the Red Army had engulfed him, they had not shored up their encirclement, and Paulus likely could have attempted to meet up with one of the forces beyond the Soviets to the west. Hitler, however, intervened, ordering no retreat. Too much of his ego hung on holding Stalin's city. Just as he had done in North Africa, Goering promised to keep the besieged army sustained with airlifts. Again, this was a pipe dream. There was no way the Luftwaffe could possibly deliver the army's daily supply needs, even permitting perfect weather. Taking into account bad weather days, the Luftwaffe would probably need to deliver 30% extra every flying day to make up for the lost days. It was simply never going to happen. Hitler devised another relief effort in the form of Manstein breaking the city free from Russian encirclement in Operation Winter Storm. For this, Manstein was placed in command of the newly christened Army Group Don, and given command of the 3rd and 4th Romanian armies, the 6th the German army, and the 4th Panzer army. Out of all of this, only the 4th Panzer army was worth anything. The Romanians were broken and ill-equipped, and the 6th army was the formation he was trying to relieve. 
Of the 4th Panzer Army, there were really only three armored divisions available for offensive operations. So out of the entire army group in his command, he essentially had three divisions with which to relieve Paulus. On December 12th, despite the long odds, Monstein launched Operation Winter Storm. For the first few days, the going wasn't so bad, but then they encountered a Soviet counterthrust. The 8th Italian Army north of Stalingrad was penetrated, and the safety of Monstein's Panzerthrust was put into jeopardy. Monstein's lead elements were only 35 miles from Stalingrad. He tried to goad Paulus out of the city by giving him orders that could be used to justify a withdrawal, despite Hitler's orders not to retreat. Paulus was a dyed-in-the-cloth Nazi, though, and would not betray Hitler. Rather than break out and link up with Manstein and save his army, he remained in the city, dooming himself and his men. By the end of December, the writing was on the wall. Stalingrad would not be relieved, but the siege would go on. The Luftwaffe was bringing in supplies via the three intact airfields in the city and evacuating the wounded on the way out, but the Russians were closing in, one house and street corner at a time. On good days, 70 tons of supplies would arrive, far short of the 300 tons required to keep the army fighting. On only three occasions did the Luftwaffe manage to meet the 300-ton quota. Then, on January 10th, the primary airfield was taken and supplies had to be dropped in. The Russians called for surrender, but Paulus refused. The situation was growing ever more desperate, though. One-fifth of the 100,000-man army was wounded, and medical care was medieval at best. With few deliveries, there were scant medical supplies, and there was essentially no fuel to keep the hospitals warm. By the end of January, even Hitler himself knew the battle was lost. But in order to save some face, he promoted Paulus to field marshal on January 30th. Paulus understood the meaning. No German field marshal had ever surrendered. Hitler might as well have placed a pistol in his hand and loaded it with one bullet. That same day, Paulus' command post was overrun, and rather than perform his Fuhrer's last wish, he surrendered. On February 2nd, the rest of the 6th Army laid down their arms. 110,000 men fell into Russian hands. They had been fighting inside the city's hellscape for four months, and were emaciated shadows of their former selves. The war was over for the 110,000 survivors of the 6th Army, but not their odyssey. They were all headed into Soviet captivity, a fate some might consider worse than death. Of the 110,000 that surrendered in early 1943, only about 5,000 would ever leave the Soviet Union. Field Marshal Paulus, the man who could not bring himself to evacuate his army and defy the Fuhrer, but then surrendered anyway, would end up cooperating with the Soviets and participating in the Committee of Free German Officers. Paulus had officially earned his place among the most sniveling class of fascists. Hitler, for his part, had little sympathy for his men or their plight. He believed every one of them should have fought to the death or killed themselves rather than surrender to the communists. How could the Ubermen of the Glorious Reich allow themselves to shame their Fuhrer? He compared them to his niece, whom he pushed to suicide, saying, quote, When you consider that a woman who has her pride goes out, shuts herself in a room, and immediately shoots herself just because someone has said a few insulting words, then I can have no respect for a soldier who's too frightened to do the same thing, but prefers to go into captivity. End quote. The battle for Stalingrad was over. But most of Western Russia still lay in German hands. Millions of Soviet citizens lived under the iron fist of German military occupation, and the government in Berlin had to somehow organize the occupation and make these lands productive. Unlike the Japanese Empire, an occupation, 
which was at least nominally cooperative. The German occupation was explicitly for the benefit of the German people and detriment of all occupied peoples. At its height, the German Reich included the territory of 14 formerly sovereign states, depending on how you count them. Areas with majority ethnically German populations, such as Austria and the Czech Sudetenland, or which had historically been a part of the German Empire, like Alsace-Lorraine and Western Poland, were assimilated directly into Germany. Most European countries were given some sort of devolution of powers. Denmark, though subordinate to the government in Berlin, retained its monarchy and elected government. Norway and Holland were placed under Reich's commissioners, who govern in place of the legitimate governments in exile. Belgium and occupied France were placed under military government. Overall, however, occupation in Western and Northern Europe was treated with a relatively, and it is definitely relative, light touch. Life in Paris, despite being under military administration, carried on much as it had before the war, with local civil administrations left in place to run the post offices, count heads, and keep day-to-day -day life humming along. At least during the early years of the war, most people could go on living as they had prior to the war. The enormous exception to this, of course, was Jews. People of Jewish descent were hunted and tracked like animals. Harboring a Jewish person could itself be a capital crime, and was certainly treated harshly. Those who turned over Jews in hiding could earn special favor with the occupying authorities, creating an added incentive to participate in the exploitation of their populations and lands. These people would earn the mark of collaborator, and many would pay the price as the war ended, and retribution was sought. Occupation in Eastern Europe and the Balkans was much different from that of the other half of Europe, however. All of Greece and Yugoslavia within the German-occupied zone was placed under harsh military government. The remainder of Poland not incorporated directly into Germany, as well as Belarusia, the Baltic states, and Ukraine were all placed under the umbrella term Ostland and governed by Reich's commissioners. Here, no special status was given to any resident. Their areas were occupied solely for exploitation and colonization. Within the vision of the Thousand-Year Reich, all of the native populations in the Ostland would eventually be replaced with ethnic Germans. Czechoslovakia was divided. Slovakia became a nominally independent puppet government, and Czechia christened Bohemia-Moravia and deemed a Reich protectorate, a status somewhere between puppet state and semi-devolved province. Occupied, and with civil administrations established, the government in Berlin now had to figure out how to extract economic value from their new territories. In the West, major industries like coal and steel production were effectively nationalized into state-owned corporations that coordinated with domestic German industry. Agricultural output was co-opted by the state as well. Germany's agricultural output had not been able to meet its foodstuff requirements for decades, and the planners in Berlin were eager to get their hands on productive lands in their newly conquered provinces. France, and surprisingly tiny Denmark, became the major breadbaskets of the empire. It may surprise some listeners to learn that the Germans didn't simply extort levies from all of their occupied populations. In Western Europe, where the occupied populations were considered cultural equals to an extent, wages were maintained and finance systems were established to fund cross-border trade. Despite all of Europe being essentially a single state-run market, the German government maintained local currencies and trade and migration barriers. At least for occupied peoples, anyway. German citizens could travel pretty much freely. This isn't to say the whole system wasn't wildly exploitative, either. Germany justified its exploitation of French labor, for example, by charging them occupation costs. That's right, they essentially charged people for their own conquest and occupation. 
Since these levies were placed in terms of Deutschmarks, the exchange rate between marks and francs was kept artificially high to get that much more out of the French. The Germans did invest some money back into French industry, but with the completely self-serving goal of increasing their economic returns to fuel the war effort and benefit Germany above all else. Despite the exploitative nature of the economy of Western and Northern Europe, it was a market-based system, and industrial and capital leaders in occupied countries were mostly allowed to maintain their positions of power and privilege, as long as they towed the line and didn't rock the boat too much. The labor market was another thing entirely, however. As one would expect, there was a perennial shortage of labor throughout Germany and the occupied countries as huge numbers of working-edge men were placed under arms. In Germany, essentially every male between 17 and 40 was in the direct employ of the military to some degree. In occupied countries, many of the men had been under arms and were now languishing in POW camps. This resulted in the demand for labor being extremely high, but the supply being very low, which, in a free market, would result in high wages. Germany did not wish to bankroll high wages, so needed to either artificially decrease wages or introduce more labor supply. They chose the latter. Skilled Western labor was always needed to create finished goods in and out of Germany, and reasonable economic incentives were introduced to bring foreign workers to work in Germany's plants and factories. But this proved costly, as these people had to be paid, fed, and housed to Western standards, which could prove quite burdensome. Keep in mind, it wasn't just Frenchmen and Norwegians answering these calls from occupied countries, but also allies like Italians who could not simply be pressed into service. What was essentially slave labor performed by prisoners of war was introduced for relatively unskilled labor, like mining and agricultural work. But even with this added workforce, labor needs could not be met. With the war in Russia, a whole new labor force was made available. Thus, conscription was introduced in the East. Millions of potential laborers came into German hands as the Wehrmacht pushed east, deep into Russia. 2.8 million former Soviet civilians would eventually be brought into Germany to work, as well as 5.1 million Red Army POWs. At first, the Germans asked for volunteers to go west. But, when word of their absolutely barbaric treatment got back to their countrymen, the volunteers dried up. Then conscription started. The occupying forces, but especially the SS, would just round people up to ship them back to Germany or some other occupied region to work in slave labor camps for whatever raw materials the Germans needed extracted. The architect of the German labor scheme was one Fritz Sauke, the Reich's labor minister, and he was truly inured to the plight of those he enslaved. This was not a case where he blinded himself to the human suffering he imposed. He was completely aware of it, stating, quote, It is a matter of total indifference to me how the Russians, how the Czechs fare, whether the other peoples live in plenty, whether they die from hunger, interests me only to the extent that we need them as slaves. End quote. Of the 5.1 million Soviet soldiers who fell into German captivity, 3.3 million would eventually die from starvation, deprivation, murder, and exhaustion in German prison camps. The network of labor camps and concentration camps served as the underlying threat that kept occupied peoples in check. In the West, the economy was merely co-opted through force and extortion, but in the East, the economy was essentially state-run. Local enterprise was eliminated, and whatever assets they had were handed over to the state-run industry or the massive private conglomerates in Germany like IG Farben and Krupp. Any resistance to Nazi occupation could land one in one of hundreds of forced labor camps that were established across the new Nazi empire. Then the military could press people into work 
through the military police, or the roving bands of Gestapo and SS men could do it themselves. Not just in the lawless occupied East, but even within Germany, the state's power to repress and disappear people was immense. Essentially from the moment he took power, Hitler began expanding the powers of the police and the state's ability to detain people with dubious legal justification. The first concentration camps were established as early as 1933 to house political prisoners and dissidents. Communists, the Nazis' old enemies from their street fighting days, were rounded up and held indefinitely. Then, all other types of political activists and dissidents were pulled from the streets any time they made enough noise to catch the attention of the Gestapo or made themselves inconvenient to local authorities. In 1936, the civil police were organized together with the federal secret police, the Gestapo, and the SD, the security apparatus of the Nazi party. This allowed them to all coordinate hand-in-hand -hand without any intervention from civil judicial authorities who may have retained some sense of jurisprudence or constitutionality. In 1937, people labeled as antisocial, including homosexuals, gypsies, the homeless, and oftentimes mentally ill, began to be rounded up for forced labor. Though not explicitly extermination camps, the concentration camps might as well have been, since their inmates were worked literally to death. By 1939, the population of the concentration camps was probably about 25,000, but with vast conquest came vast numbers of undesirables to be dealt with. Poland suffered enormously under their conquerors. Polish civil society was immediately repressed. Anyone in the professional class, doctors, lawyers, professors, and clergy, were rounded up for imprisonment and forced labor. Of course, anyone caught resisting or suspected of resisting was added to the prison population. This was the case in all of the other occupied countries as well. Being caught or suspected of resistance was met with a deportation and indefinite imprisonment. Of course, no population suffered worse than the Jews of Europe. Germany's Jewish population lost their protection as citizens in September of 1935 when the Nuremberg Laws were passed. This merely paved the way for state-organized violence against the entire ethnic Jewish population. About 150,000 escaped from Germany by 1938, but many of them fled to countries within Europe that would all be under occupation by the end of 1941. As the Wehrmacht rolled over conquered territories from Brittany to the Volga, the SS was close behind, rounding up and exterminating any Jews that were found, typically by simply shooting them. In January of 1942, at a meeting in Wannsee, Himmler, head of both the Gestapo and the SS, institutionalized the state-sanctioned extermination of Jews, which unto this point had been done of his own initiative, with the tacit support of Hitler. Now, the mass murder was an actual policy of the government, giving him the authority to involve other apparatuses of state in his plans. Because Jews were often corralled into ghettos, especially in Eastern Europe, it was fairly easy to identify them and round them up for resettlement to labor camps. By the end of 1943, 40% of the world's Jewish population was already dead. When liberation finally came in 1945, the final solution, as the extermination of the Jewish population was called, had essentially been completed. Almost every European Jew had been rounded up and millions had been murdered. Jews and other politically undesirable people were rounded up wholesale and disappeared everywhere in Europe. This wanton and wholesale cruelty would fuel resistance movements across the continent, but it also reveals the lie that anyone could deny knowledge of the Holocaust. Everyone in Europe, and in Germany in particular, saw their friends and colleagues, their butchers, mechanics, and librarians disappear without a trace. 
and the administration of this massive state-run murder enterprise required tens of thousands of people, from accountants in the economic division, to train conductors, to prison guards, to repairmen. All of these ordinary small people had to be involved and complicit in the Holocaust. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of ordinary Germans participated in it directly. They had to see and smell the millions who were led to their death through execution and starvation. What did these people tell their friends and family? I don't believe for a moment that the average person wasn't completely aware. The operation was simply too huge. Too many people were involved. And those at the top administering this empire of murder were simply too nonchalant about it. They didn't code their intentions. They stated them outright. A stated policy of the Nazi party from its very inception was the inferiority and elimination of Jews. No one should have been surprised when they moved to carry out that stated policy goal. This is where the real difference between Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan lies, or even the totalitarian communism of the Soviet Union. Wanton cruelty and murder in the Japanese Empire was never its raison d'etre. They were the side effects of its policies. Under the Stalinist system, mass murder and death were effects of maintaining political control. But racial superiority was not a factor. Theoretically, Imperial Japan could have existed without mass execution. Communism does not call for the murder of millions in its founding principles. Nazism does. The extermination of whole races is baked into it from its very inception. To be a Nazi, to fly the swastika, is an implicit call to violence and extermination of millions. It cannot be separated out. In the winter of early 1943, Germany's sins were piling up and the tide was beginning to turn. Retribution was on the horizon, whether those on the ground chose to see it or not.